1: Chris
3: Garlock here with this week's Labor History Today.
4: I wanted to try to explain this incredibly surprising find, which was that the use of the term working class was becoming more and more common across the late 20th century, even in the face of the ascendancy of the right. That was
3: Robin Lee Muncie, whose article, The Strange Career of the Working Class in U.S. Political Culture Since the 1950s, was published in the December issue of Labor Studies in Working Class History. Professor Muncie is director of the Honors Program in the Department of History at the University of Maryland, College Park. I interviewed Robin on WPFW back in February when I was joined by Patrick Dixon, the managing editor of Labor Studies in Working Class History. Patrick is also a research analyst at the Kalmanovitz Initiative and a co-producer right here on the Labor History Today podcast. Plus, in this week's Cool Things from the George Meany Labor Archives, Alan, Chloe, and Ben take a look in their
0: miscellaneous folder for the 1912 Lawrence textile strike. There's a gold mine in there, and this is something totally unexpected. We'll find out
3: more about just what they found a little later in the program. All right, here's the
2: show. But you're still as far as I can see, our
5: working
2: class hero is
1: something to be. Our working class hero is
5: something to be. At the top, they are telling you still.
1: But first, you must
5: learn how to smile
1: as you kill.
5: If you want to be like the fool, I'm hill.
3: A working Hello, Robin. I think she's. uh, you're probably getting your cup of tea, Robin, right?
4: (laughs) I'm doing great. How are you?
3: All right. We're good. We're good. Thanks for being with us, and thanks for this wonderful article on the great title, by the way, The Strange Career of, quote-unquote, the Working Class in U.S. Political Culture Since the 1950s. Uh, Robin, you're a professor out at the University of Maryland, so you must know uh, my friend Ben Blake. I go to visit him at the Labor Archives all the time.
4: Yes, I sure do. We're really lucky to have him.
3: Oh, he's amazing and he's so pleased to get to show off his, uh, you know, the the wonderful things that they have uh, tucked away there in the archives. So we're we're excited about that.
4: Yes, we're so lucky to have gotten the AFL CIO archives out at Maryland. It's been a real real treasure for us.
3: You've done, by the way, just an amazing piece of work. I mean, you've looked at uh, publications, most notably the New York Times, but a number of other publications over a huge span of time, 60, 70 years, at the use of the term working class in this country. And I want to get into the research on that, but I want to have both of you kind of give me your idea of what you think working class actually is. Uh, Robin, why don't you go ahead and, and, and talk about that for a bit?
4: Right, well I, the, the way that I would use the term working class is different from the way that the people I studied use the working class and I think that that was one of the, uh, most important findings. It helped me explain the kind of explosion of the use of the term working class in the U.S. in the late 20th century and especially the early 21st in a society which, as you said, is usually, is, is eager to represent itself as classless or as entirely middle class. So it turned out that the context in which people would use the term working class or felt um, comfortable using the term working class in the late 20th century, those contexts um, meant that they were de- defining the working class in a way that I, n- I would not necessarily. So I, I define the working class in a pretty... Um, pretty conventional way. that has to do with access to the means of production, ownership of the means of production, but also to um, to power. There are some people who um, define the working class now in the U.S. as a, a class of wage. The, if you're in the working class, you have um, a lower income, but you also have less power at work than people in the middle class. So if you supervise people, for instance, in the workplace, you don't fit as easily into a working class um, uh, category as you would if you didn't. So um, I kind of combine that with uh, the conventional uh, use of the term.
3: Patrick and I were talking, you know, before we came on air about this, you know, that it, it gets confusing. You know, my, my, my dad always had this, you know, very sort of simple, and my dad was a labor historian, and we would say, you know, you're, you're, there's only, you're one of two classes, either, you know, you work for people or people work for you. Mm-hmm. And, and that was his definition. And, and while I think in some ways that is a, it is a really good, clear dividing line. Cause, you know, his point was that what I think a large part of what you're talking about is that people get confused, right? Mm-hmm. Because in this country, maybe you work for somebody, but this is what Patrick and I were talking about. You make a lot of money. So okay. if I work for somebody, but I make, you know, half a million dollars a year, you know, I don't control the means of production, but I'm well paid. Am I working class?
4: Right, I think that that has been a, a source of confusion in some ways, but but it may be not as, as confusing as um, some of us would imagine. Because, and I say this because um, if you look at um, uh, polls, so people who are, are are polled and and asked since the nineteen fifties, are you what class are you in? And if they're given the choice of working class, middle class, um, lower class. You know, poor and or rich, about half the people identify as working class over time and about half identify as middle class over time. That actually hasn't shifted much. Hmm. And that, it's a surprising statistic, I think, for a lot of us because we have kind of fallen for the representation of the country as overwhelmingly middle class since the, since the mid century. Um, but that is, that turns out to be, a representation of the country that comes from the media and from not from ordinary Americans who, in some kind of survey, would actually be as likely to identify as working class as middle class. And that that, that is consistent over time suggests a um, pretty, pretty great clarity among people about where they think they fit into the economy and society.
3: Well, I want to talk about your, your article, uh, which, you know, you take a look at the use very specifically the use of the term working class. And I'm looking uh uh at this uh I I like charts because they're it's <laughs> <and this is laughs> a good chart. It's a good chart because it really shows graphically, you know, you start back in the thirties and goes up to the two thousands. Um and it's a very steady and, and and the times pretty dramatic increase uh of the use of the term. So why don't you talk about Uh, what... What you know? What you were? What you had in mind in terms of studying this? What was? What was your thought of what? What you were looking for?
4: Right. When I first started, this wasn't even a project. Mm-hmm. You would not call this a project because I thought what I was going to do was to take a five-minute dip <laughs> into the New York Times historical. You know, it's that fantastic digitized um, New York Times since the beginning of the Times until uh, into the 21st century. I thought I just wanted to confirm what I suspected to be true, which would was that that I imagined that the use of the term working class would practically disappear, in reference to the U.S. at least, in the 1950s because of the anti-communist crusade and the association of working class, you know, with communism. So it would just disappear then. But I imagined that there would be at least a slight uptick in the 1960s because of the easing of that anti-communist crusade. And, but I didn't, I imagined, too, this is where I was so completely wrong, um, I imagined that after the, say, the early 1970s, it would just completely fall off again because of the ascendancy of the new right, mm-hmm. um, and because of the decimation of the industrial working class. So for those, I, th- I guess just what I guessed. Okay, so I was absolutely right about the 1950s, <laughs> that was the only thing I was right about it was so interesting because as I I I tracked the use of the term it turned out that of course the use of the term did uh, fall off to practically nothing in the 1950s it did uh, there was an uptick in the 1960s but then the use of the term working class absolutely skyrocketed in the 70s increased again in the 80s and has been increasing ever since so that meant I now had all kinds of new questions about how could this be true and how did we miss that? Um, historians, I mean, so the, so the project began in a question that I just thought was going to be answered, you know, in two minutes and I would be moving on.
3: Yeah. Welcome. Welcome to uh, to <laughs> today You know, I do this all the time. I think, uh, oh, I'll just go look there, and it'll take a couple of seconds. And you right. know, an hour later, you've got you've gone right down the rabbit hole. Right. But, uh, but this is you know you've really and, and what's cool about what you've done, you know, and this chart does show that it shows you know basically a doubling uh, from the '60s to the '70s, which I would not have predicted either. I was you know, I, and it's actually I, since the basically the seventies, I've been reading the, you know, the times. Um, and so I sort of had a sense, uh, of, of the, you know, I just, I think, I don't think I've seen working class mentioned that much. Um, right. and, and, but, but this really, you know, cause you have access to this database, uh, that really shows it very clearly. What are some of the, uh, those other questions, uh, that then occurred to you that you researched?
4: Right. I mean, um I started this research in 2014-2015. So it was before the mm-hmm. um the beginnings of the the presidential primaries and the, you the know, the 2016 election itself. Um when of course it became very clear that everybody using the term working class It's just absolutely everywhere. The the political culture was lousy with the term working class in 2016-2017, th- but I began this before then. And so really in the beginning of the research I wanted to try to explain this incredibly surprising um, find, which was that the use of the term working class was becoming more and more common across the late 20th century, even in the face of the ascendancy of the right. You know, not the ascendancy of the left, but the ascendancy of the right. um, And... um, what seemed to me a kind of assumption of a disappearing working class because of deindustrialization. So it really, I thought, whoa, you know, what is going on here? So that's where I started. But boy, by the time we got uh, into the 2016, 2017, when there's a sort of explosion of the use of the term working class, um, that is so obvious to everybody uh, who's paying attention in the U.S., then I, t- I realized that the things I was finding about why that term had increased uh, in the 70s and 80s, that those contexts and those trends explained the use of the term-working class in 2016 and 2017. So you know, my, my focus shifted just slightly there.
3: We'll get back to the second half of our interview with Robin Lee Munsey in just a sec. But first, this week's Cool Things from the George Meany Art Times. The 1912 Lawrence Textile Strike, also known as the Bread and Roses Strike, was a strike by immigrant workers in Lawrence, Massachusetts, led by the industrial workers of the world. It began on January 12th and ended March 14th, and in this week's Cool Things from the George Meany Labor Archives, Alan, Chloe, and Ben discovered something completely unexpected when they took a look in their miscellaneous folder. Here's
1: Alan. So we're here at the Meany Labor Archive at the University of Maryland, College Park. I'm the archive specialist, Alan Weirdak, uh, here with the labor archivist, Ben Blake, our student assistant, Chloe Danyo. Say hi, y'all. Hello. Hi. All right, so... Today on Cool Things in the Mini, we actually are looking at this uh, strike data material from the, uh, well, I guess initially from the 1912 um, Bread and Roses uh, textile strike in Lawrence, Massachusetts. Um, As a matter of fact, this uh, so this folder comes from are uh, miscellaneous uh, folders, which is kind of like digging in a gold goldmine um, in an archival sense. And basically what it is is that um, around the time of the Bread and Roses strike, there was this God and Country parade um, that was organized by, I guess, the um, the more corporate patriotic um, communities in Lawrence against... Um, what they believed was the radical, anarchistic nature of the IWW. And um, in this, there there are reports, there are some newspaper articles. Um, there's actually a parade roster um, that kind of shows like all of the divisions that um, marched in the parade. And that's kind of where you can sort of see that um, labor was not very well represented and it was actually... Um, more uh the military um a lot of churches a lot of professional organizations and it kind of shows the backlash of the bread and roses strike in 1912 um so first we're going to uh start um with ben ben what do you what did you find interesting about these materials and these documents
0: well i think it was very interesting it's an example where in a a set of folders uh, or collection entitled miscellaneous uh as Alan was talking about, there's a gold mine in there, and this is something totally unexpected. Um, it, It basically is a folder on a 1962, almost like reenactment of the Forgotten Country Parade that originally happened in 1912. The 1912 Forgotten Country Parade was aimed at driving the union organizers, the IWW organizers, out of town in the wake of a trial where the leadership was acquitted Uh, So then, 50 years later in Lawrence in 1962, the powers that be organized a 50-year commemorative strike for the anti-union for God and country parade. Uh, And so they have this roster that um, Alan was talking about, and the folder is just a goldmine of information. And, and I know Chloe's been looking at that, so maybe she want to comment on some of the interesting items in there. Yeah, sure.
5: Uh, the first thing I found mm-hmm. when I came across this folder was a stack of documents, correspondences that were um, st- uh, clipped together. Um, the first one has a letterhead from the United Rubber, Cork, Linoleum, and Plastic Workers. And um, these series of correspondences talk about... Um, the union's concern about this God and country mark and sort of the narrative behind it. um, They talk about how it was very much sponsored by the Catholic church. And if you look at the parade roster, you'll see that lots of different Catholic schools, priests, all types of um, Catholic orders were represented in this parade, but the unions really were not at all. Um, And um, it kind of talks about just the wider implications of this, that union history is not taught in schools and um, the IWW was the only group that came in to help these struggling uh, strikers. No one else would, um, no one else would help them organize. But the IWW came in and um, ended up. Even though even though people ended up dying in this in this strike, um, it was kind of a win and it had a really important legacy. Um, but when the narrative was changed 50 years later with this God and Country march, um, people were concerned about the implications that this has for kind of rewriting history, basically, and that's kind of a thing that um, is still very much relevant today. You know, I was not definitely taught very much union history at all, and a lot of people just don't really have a sense of what, what a union does, um, the, the way that it works for us, and it's interesting to see that. This is an issue even 50 years ago.
0: And I think Chloe's point about kind of accurate history is really important Uh, in this kind of time of fake news it's a short jump to then fake history and in a lot of ways um, this parade commemorating what was what was labeled a defeat actually it wasn't a defeat so the 1962 parade was trying to rewrite history and turn the Lawrence strike into a defeat. Um, so I think it's very relevant today. I think the other thing that strikes me, as Chloe said, this one folder is a goldmine of all kinds of information. And in a lot of ways, it raises more questions than it answers. Like the letter itself says that Kennedy was involved in the or was in the parade Or like which Kennedy, you know, was this, you know, John Kennedy. Um, and there's no other documentation. So you have to do follow up research on that. And I think the comments about the original strike itself um, by the education director of the rubber workers, uh, as uh, Chloe mentioned, is very, very interesting. Um, there's comments, like he wrote kind of a, uh, an article which was later published in, I think it's a journal, Labor Today in 1963, that was kind of a critique of the parade and a call for um, labor education. And in that article, he talks about how uh, he says that the strike was originally uh, condemned as, a, uh, as anarchist and uh, atheist and communist. And what's interesting is he, he says that, well, if it was so atheist, then why did a number of uh, local ministers and church figures uh, support the strike? Uh, and he also talks about the IWW as a tradition that opposed dictatorship, and really, uh, although this is before like the Russian Revolution, uh, would have opposed uh, any kind of dictatorship like Stalin. So, I think that the 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 uh, United Rubber Workers Education Director is trying to make the point that. Um, it's important to look at this history and show how it can be uh, really falsified, and how it's the role of the labor movement and supporters of the labor movement to really, and for us as labor archivists to really work on uh, creating a truly factual record of history, which were where um, that's available to researchers.
1: And um, and two of the documents that we have in here are actually. Uh, there are copies of newspaper articles from the Lawrence Eagle Tribune um, on September twenty second, 1962. Um, first, I think what's interesting to note about these is that they're celebrating the end of the Bread and Roses strike. Because actually the impetus behind why we started looking into this was um, earlier this week was the anniversary of the start of the Bread and Roses strike in 1912. So instead of, you know, these articles, you know, instead of this God country's um parade happening in March, it happened at the end. And there's actually a um, church leader can't find the name on this uh, on these newspaper articles but as Chloe was saying there's a church leader who is credited with ending the strike through this god and country rhetoric and through this sort of patriotism over you know what they viewed as radical support of you know the working class. Um, So yeah I mean it's really fascinating to see how Um, a lot of, you know, people locally in Lawrence and, you know, in, in that part of Massachusetts saw, um, saw this, you know, protest essentially, and saw this strike and kind of saw the end of it and how they view this, like how they kind of celebrate this patriotic parade, um, that commemorates the end of the strike instead of seemingly celebrating the
5: strike itself. I think there was also an interesting bit in that, um, this, this uh, correspondence took place in 1962 from the rubber workers. Um, and sort of in, in this essay, the, um, the guys uh, talking about how um, in Akron, Ohio, um, the rubber workers needed a union and no one would help organize them but the IWW. So they kind of see some sort of tie between what happened 50 years earlier and their current uh, situation today.
0: I think some of the... It's really interesting how this one folder that maybe has a total of 30, 40 pages of documents in it could become a whole project and even, you know, an article, uh, a book, a a blog post, something like that. Um, And it really just opens up a lot of avenues for investigation. One of the notes that uh, in the response to the letter from the uh, United Rubber Workers Education Director talks about how Samuel Gomper's Testified before Congress about the Lawrence strike and talked. And, and in that testimony, and I, I did, never had heard of this, uh, he brought one of the young women strikers, um, and he talks about how uh, part of her scalp was missing because it had been caught in a loom. And he makes the point that the conditions were so bad in Lawrence that uh, it's not something that you would celebrate for God and country. And I thought that's interesting, and it kind of and there's some copies of some of the testimony in the file too before Congress uh, by the strikers, and then another thing that, that the, uh, the the rubber worker uh, director of education I think his name is Wesley McCune uh, in 1962 uh, talks about a young woman striker who was killed uh, named Anna Lo Paizo. And she was shot and killed uh, during the strike, apparently by the police. And the point he's making is this is not something that should have been celebrated in 1962, the murder of a young woman striker and who was just striking for uh, basic conditions. And he talks about the, the issues in the strike that the strikers won was a 15% pay increase, overtime pay, abolition of the speed up and uh, no discrimination against strikers. So it was a a strike victory that the local community in 1912 tried to turn into a defeat with this God and Country march and drive the union organizers out of town. And then in 1962, uh, tried to repeat that kind of falsification or uh, kind of an anti-union narrative that really was not you know, factually true, and hit kind of the brutality that the strikers, these young, largely women strikers faced.
1: And I think one one other thing to note um, about these uh, newspaper articles from 1962 um, are that at least one of the photos is the very iconic photo um, of people marching in the street um, in 1912, and it actually um, it refers to them as a mob, it um, kind of celebrate it, it calls the strikers militant, and it has um, the police uh, holding them at bay. And just, you know, some of the language in 1962 of how they refer to strikers and radicals um, I found really fairly fascinating and not what I expected for the time. Is there anything to add? I'm good. Chloe? That's it. Okay, cool. Well, this has been Cool Things at the Meany. I'm the archives specialist, Alan Weirdak, here with the labor archivist, Ben Blake, and our student assistant, Chloe Daniel. Thanks, y'all.
3: That was this week's Cool Things from the George Meany Labor Archives. Now, back to the second half of our interview with Robin Lee Muncy, whose article, The Strange Career of the Working Class in U.S. Political Culture Since the 1950s, was published in the December issue of *Labor Studies in Working Class History*. Let me just reintroduce you. Uh, it's Chris Garlock hosting uh, *A Rise for Bill Fletcher* here on WPFW. Our guest is Robin Muncy. She's written a terrific article called *The Strange Career*. Of quote unquote, the working class in U.S. political culture since the 1950s. It's in the December issue of Labor Studies in Working Class History. And we have the associate editor, Patrick. Is that your uh, title? Managing there? editor. Managing editor. Ooh, even better. I like managing editors. <laughs> uh, of, of that. And so let me ask you, Patrick, as the managing editor of the publication, mm-hmm. um, which is, by the way, uh, extensively footnoted. It's uh, I had to read all the footnotes. It was very, uh, you know, so it's, it's really well documented documented but so did i (laughs) i'm sure but what are what are some of the things that that stuck out to you in in working with robin on this
2: Uh, we thought this was uh, really fortunate that we got this article because as you've described it wasn't just uh it wasn't just outstanding research it was extremely timely and i think as as robin mentioned when when, when the article was started, it didn't seem necessarily as important and as, as, as relevant as it was today. today. Mm-hmm. But by the time we were ready to go to print, it was, you know, I think a, a valuable contribution to, to, these, the, to these sorts of conversations. And the term working classes, as it appears in the New York Times, clearly is something slightly different mm. from the definitions that we might have discussed as we opened the show.
3: Well, and let me maybe throw this out to to both of you. I mean, Robin, you read some really interesting. I have some interesting analysis that leads to some interesting conclusions about about why there's been such an increase over time in the use of that. And I'd like you to talk a little bit about that.
4: Yeah, thank you. Um, this is the most important part, it seems to me. I mean, it did turn out to be true um, that in part, the increase in the use of the term-working class in the 60s and and early 70s, and this would continue to be true now, uh, was the relaxation of the anti-communist crusade and the kind of readmission of the left into mainstream political conversations. So that actually turned out to be a part of the explanation that I wasn't completely all wet, as I imagined that might be the case. <laughs> but it turned out to be not nearly the most important thing. Um, there are two other contexts in which the term working class uh, came into prominence. And the first was this um, begins in the, the mid 1960s and certainly continues today, and your listeners will recognize this for sure. Whenever a journalist or politician wanted, as specifically as possible, to identify racist white people, mm-hmm. The journalist or politician chose the term "working class," right? It was. It seemed like so at the time. Mm -hmm. If you put this in the context of the of the moment in the 1960s, it's a time when journalists at the New York Times are saying explicitly the working class is disappearing into the middle class. The U.S. is becoming a classless society. It was always meant to be. That the whole America is middle class, and yet whenever they were discussing racist white people, suddenly you know, the term-working class would appear. And so I started thinking about, whoa, you know, what is that about? And it seemed so much to be a strategy for denying the pervasiveness of racism in the United States. Because if you'd said, oh, these people who are spouting racist epithets are trying to keep black people out of their workplaces, if you'd said they're middle class, you'd be identifying them with the whole country. Wow. Right? Yeah. But if you say they're they're working class in a context in which the people in your, your publication are, are identifying the whole of the country really as middle class, then if you say they're working class, then you're containing it. You're seeming to say, Oh, only this little pocket of Americans is racist. Right, this little pocket. And that becomes even more common and I think even more detrimental and um Uh, obfuscating as we get into the 70s and 80s, because in the 70s and 80s and since then, and again, you know, listeners will recognize this as being the case now. So often the working class is represented as, in fact, in the process of disappearing because of the industrialization and the identification of the working class as wholly blue-collar and you know the the refusal to identify service workers for instance as working class so the great thing about identifying um the uh, white racists as working class is that it seems like they're only a small part of the u.s. and they're disappearing
3: it's a way of marginalizing, isn't it?
4: Yes, and the saying that oh, that, and denying structural racism, denying the the pervasive racism, you know, among all white people in the U.S. It's a way of saying it's going to die out on its own. Look, it's going to die out with these dinosaurs who are um, a part of a class that's disappearing anyway. We, there's nothing you have to do to get rid of this. It's going to die out with them.
2: Patrick. The omission of people who aren't white from the working class seems striking, too. Oh. So you have, it seems, many newspapers and television stories about Cabr- Cabrini-Green, for example, through the sort of 70s and 80s, the large uh, public housing right. development in Chicago. But it's not described as a working class community. It's described as a ghetto sometimes. Mm. And it's often framed, it seems, not as a sort of systematic uh systematic consequence of the way in which, I don't know, American capitalism works, but more the result of failed housing policies, failures in design, that uh, there wasn't enough green space or there was too much green space, that there were too many floors and that there were, or there weren't enough floors. Mm.
3: It's something sort of beyond the the control. And, and here's another thing that that uh, I think is either explicit or maybe implicit in, in in what we're talking about is that I often feel like working class. It's kind of funny. It can cut two ways. On the one hand, it can be a bit of an epithet, you know, working class, especially when associated with racism. But it can also be something, you know, and and, and Trump used this to some to some extent, you know, in terms of 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 almost sort of. Uh, cr- credentials, you know, working class, working with your hands, building things, you know, a doer, right, as opposed to a politician um, or you know, or, or or a wealthy person. Which you know, this is a guy who was a multimillionaire by the time he was out of diapers, as far as I can tell, right? So, but he really you know presents himself as a as a working class kind of guy.
4: Right. I think that the way he defines the working class, however, I mean, a lot of people may have noticed that he actually used the term working class in his recent State mm-hmm. of the Union address. And he's the way he uses it there is completely consistent with the, what's emerging in the 1970s um, and 80s in that um, it is just never the case that the enemy of the working class or the opponent or the oppressor of the working class in the 70s and 80s is represented as an employer, as a corporate interest, as a capitalist. The enemy is somebody else. I can go into that later if you'd like me to, but that's true for, that's true uh, for uh Trump as well. He defined the in his state of the union address, he identified the enemy of the working class, the oppressors of of uh the US working class as illegal immigrants and the political class that protects them. Mm. Right. It has nothing to do with the workplace. It has nothing to do with the means of production. It has nothing to do with property ownership at all. Ooh. Right. <laughs> it has only to do with. It has something to do with immigrants. It's like the people who are oppressing the U.S. working class are immigrants, and of course that is, as Patrick said, that is a way of of denying. Who's in the working class? Because of course immigrants are in the working class. Mm-hmm. So it's that that use is a way of splitting, or has the effect, I think, of alienating workers from each other, but also ignoring the workplace and and um, uh, capitalist interests and corporate interests as the oppressors of workers, both immigrant and native born.
3: Patrick,
2: there's a there's a moment. It reminds me of a moment in, in uh, Michael Wolfe's Fire and Fury, in trump's no. entertaining visitors at the white house i think and uh, they might be from japan and they say to him what's this term white trash we keep on hearing <laughs> and oh. trump says they're just like me except they don't have lots of money ah. and i i don't, haven't got the the research that, to that, uh to to uh to support this claim in the way that you have here robin with such sort of thoroughness but the rise of the term working class and the rise of the term white trash that seem perhaps they coincide in some way i'm not sure
3: i think and robin you may know better than i but i think white trash has definitely been researched uh, that's definitely uh, I, I don't know about the link although i'm sure it's certain that that's there but uh, yeah that sounds like him <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> definitely yeah. sounds like something that and he amazing. would have said yeah um, you know, and, and you know, probably has uh, you know some some truth to it. I mean, as, as there is with so much of, of what he says. Uh, you know, it's, it's sort of a piece a piece of it from a from a different point of view. When
2: they tortured and scared you for twenty odd years, and then they expect you to pick a green. Really function, you're so full of fear.
5: A working class zero is something to be. A working class zero is something to be.
3: that's it for this week's edition of the award-winning labor history today podcast subscribe today on your favorite podcast app where you can also spread the word by liking and following us today's music includes two versions of john lennon's classic working class hero the first by ozzy osborne and the second by green day as always Thanks for listening, and let us know what you think by commenting or emailing us. Labor History Today is produced by the Metro Washington Council's Union City Radio and the Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. For Labor History Today, this has been Chris Garlock. Thanks for listening, keep making history, and see you next week.
2: If you want to be like all the folks on the hill
5: Than a beer A working class here.